Welcome back, fellow paranormal aficionados. This week I'm drinking... Boardhead Tangerine Blonde Ale. And that's boardhead as in surfboard head. Um, I just figured we've had a streak of a couple hot days and I just thought this was a good way to honor the summer. Um, tangerine Blonde Ale. It's got basically like an old SUV wagon with the wood paneling on the side, a picture of it with a surfboard on the roof and uh, a big wave behind it. And it's by the the um brewing company three monkeys and it's made in california and um yeah let's go ahead mm. anything tangerine and a blonde ale it's got to be delicious and it absolutely is i actually did have to order this i've been looking forward to it so um yeah i definitely recommend it for a crisp uh, refreshing drink on a on a hot summer day so this week i thought we would do to piggyback off of where we were last week, moving just slightly farther north into the west, the Slingerlands area. I was almost tempted to do everything from last week and also this week altogether, but because I think cumulatively it was eight individual towns, seven or eight individual towns, maybe even nine, I can't remember, um, I was like, I should just break it up into two. Now, I didn't find cr a crazy amount in this area. We're going to be taking a little road trip through Slingerlands, Del Mar, Voorheesville, and Gilderland, but it was enough that it definitely warranted an episode, and honestly, most of it, with the exception of one thing, is personal st our personal stories, so I'm really excited to delve into it, but of course, I always like to start with the heavy hitters in this episode i don't know how heavy it is but it's the most notorious out of everything we're going to be talking about so we're going to start in slingerlands and we're going to start with the ironweed house it excuse me it is an 1876 victorian in slingerlands new york and it's really beautiful um definitely got that haunted vibe to it just because of the architecture i'll post a photo of it um, again it's the iron weed house um, so the house was built in 1876 for delaware and hudson railroad superintendent charles d hammond in the 1980s the house was used in the film iron weed starring jack nicholson and meryl streep a According to the Spotlight News article, Susan Leith, Bethlehem's town historian, said the house was chosen by films executives because of the dilapidated state it was in at that time. Prior to use as a movie set, neighborhood children called it the haunted house. The current owners, Mark and Eileen Tryron, Tryon purchased the house in 1993 and set to work restoring the home as best they could to what it had, would have looked like if it was new again. So for a little bit of history, for Eileen Tryon, it wasn't love at first sight, not nearly. As she walked into the dilapidated building at 1511 New Scotland Road at Slingerlands, buying the property was the furthest thing from her mind. Then after coming in through the back door and walking through a kitchen and dining room, she entered the front part of the house. That's where everything changed. We were just looking at the house because we liked old houses and people told, told us we had to see it before it fell down. It was in rough shape, but when I walked into the front room, you could see the wonderful woodwork and how beautifully it was built. Then I fell in love with it. It was 20 years ago that Tryon and her husband, Mark, bought the house from Garrett Dillenbeck, a retired scientist and inventor who helped create the fax machine. 
That's fascinating. A few years earlier, in 1986 and 87, Dylan Beck had led a Hollywood movie studio into his house for the filming of William Kennedy's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Ironweed, starring Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. And it was Dylan Beck, a personal friend of Tryon's sister-in-law, who showed the Tryons what would become their new home. It was in the back of our van, and my... I was in the back of our van, and my husband and Mr. Dylan Beck were in the front, said Tryon, of her introduction to the house. Mr. Dylan Beck said, there it is, but we were coming up from Bridge Street, and with all the big trees and being in the back seat, I couldn't really see too much, and there was so much paint peeling off the house, it kind of blended well into the trees. Things didn't look any better once they pulled into the driveway and noticed part of the east wall was gone. I got out of the car and looked up to see the light fixture in the upstairs bedroom, said Tryon. Then we came in through the back stairs and I peeked into the dining room. I saw the missing wall and how part of the floor had caved in. But when we got to the front room, the sunlight was beaming through the windows and it was beautiful. No one had lived in the house for quite a while. According to Tryon, Dylan Beck had another home and said he hadn't turned on the heat at 1511 New Scotland in 16 years. He also mentioned that he was willing to sell it, but preferably to a family. He had a lot of offers, but people wanted to break it up into apartments, and he said that it would be nice if it, he could sell it to one family. Well, with that, he offered it to us and we took it. We didn't pay market value, but we paid what we could afford and soon began hearing from family members and close friends that we were insane. Mark Tryon said he never second-guessed himself or his wife. He too was sold by the front room. We were actually pretty happy living in our old house in West Sand Lake with our three little boys, he said. But when you saw the molding, the woodwork, and the carved doors, you realized it was a pretty special property. We decided at that point to stabilize it and save it. We just didn't want it to disappear. They retained the walnut and chestnut wood that runs throughout the house, as well as an elaborate hall tree that belonged to Dillenbeck. There's also a Dutch oven in the furnished basement that Eileen refurbished herself, but almost everything else is new. The Tryons have done extensive work on all three and a half floors of the building, which was built in the Victorian Second Empire style that typically reflected the opulent architecture of France during the reign of Napoleon III. So it was built in 1876 for Charles Darius Hammond, who was an executive with the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. It was Hammond who in 1901 took personal charge of, D of a D&H train and headed to North Creek where he handed Theodore Roosevelt a telegram informing him that President McK William McKinley had died, the victim of an assassin's bullet, and that Roosevelt was now president. Hammond was also active in the Slingerlands Methodist Church just a few doors to the north on New Scotland Road or Route 85 and was instrumental in the building of the Slingerlands Railroad Station in 1863. It was somewhere around 1790 that John Albert Slingerland built the first home in the area just west of the Tollgate Restaurant on New Scotland Road. The whole stretch of Route 85 between Maple Avenue to the east and Helderberg Parkway to the west has recently been designated as a National Historic District. We surveyed about 100 homes, and many of them still had outbuildings or carriage barns that survive today, said Susan Leith, town of Bethlehem historian. Along with all the Victorian homes that were built in the 1870s and 80s in the same vicinity as the Slingerlands Railroad Station, there were also some very historical industrial buildings, such as the Slingerlands Printing Company and the Tollgate Restaurant which I grew up going to amazing ice cream and I always got their bubblegum cigars there. <laughs> but the first house 
The house built by John Albert Slingerland at 1575 New Scotland is still there. It's not a grand Victorian house. It's smaller and doesn't really catch your eye like some of the other ones, but it's a great old house. John Albert Slingerland had three sons and most noteworthy being John John I. Slingerland, who built a house at the end of Bridge Street in 1843 and became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives in 47. Still, the community he lived in didn't really start to grow until the railroad came to town. Slingerlands had a post office as early as 1851, but it was a quite a small community until the Albany-Susquehanna Railroad came through in 1863. When they got the railroad to stop there and built the station, that's when it started to grow and you saw a little cluster of homes. With the train, people realized they could work in Albany and live out here in the suburbs. It was John I. Slingerland who built the house at 1511 New Scotland that Hammond moved into. Hammond lived there with his family until 1912, when the property was sold to Emma Hutt, who added on two more rooms in the back of the house, as well as one of the two long porches that adorned the east and west side of the structure. In 1926, the Dillon Beck family, just the third owner in the history of the house, moved in. Garrett Dillon Beck was in his early 20s when his father, a pharmacist, purchased the home. Along with his sister, Garrett lived in the house off and on for some time, but during the 1950s, it was Garrett and his wife, Marion, who used the home as their full-time residence. During during the peak of the Cold War years, Dylan Beck turned his home into a radio transmitting station for armed services, his work earning him in the 1955 Air Force Scroll of Appreciation Award, Award for Improving Morale. During part of the Cold War, Garrett was up at the Air Force Base in Greenland, in Thule, Greenland, and he would be transmitting messages back to his wife at the house in Slingerland, said Jill Tryon, who met Dylan Beck in 87 when she was helping to prepare the house for the filming of Ironweed. He had set up all these huge antennas, all his own doing, and on the land behind his house, and when he was back home, he would be contacted by servicemen, and he would patch those calls into the homes here. Tryon had been working as a painter in 1987 when she got a phone call from her local union boss to head over to the house. We had been working on all the movie sets for Ironweed, so when I first went to the house, it was in pretty rough shape. They put up a fake wall in the back where it had collapsed. Then we did a lot of painting and wallpapering in the front room to spruce that up and made it look pretty sharp. I was surprised after watching the film because we would spend days preparing this one spot in the house and then you would only catch a glimpse of it here and there. But I guess that's how they do it in the movies. Kennedy, who also wrote the screenplay for the movie had and had both of his daughters, Dana and Dana Nelson and Kathy Caruso, working on the production crew, said they were looking for a house that reflected some wealth as well as the hard times of the 1930s. Nicholson's character, Francis Phelan, was a former professional baseball player who, after falling on hard times, returns to his home in Albany. I actually had done a story on Dylan Beck, a real pioneer in the radio field back in the 1950s for the Times Union, said Kennedy. I can I can remember they had to paint half the house and that they shot a couple scenes out there. The house had to have a certain level of elegance and Dil Dylan Beck's house did. The Phelans weren't millionaires, but they were well-to-do people. Jill Tryon, meanwhile, was getting an 
along with getting an education about movie making, had a wonderful opportunity to get to know the homeowner. At lunchtime, all the carpenters and painters and set decorators would leave for an hour or two, and I always brought my own lunch. So I would spend that time sitting and talking to Garrett, who was a wealth of information. He was eccentric and had some ways about him, like most people do who lived through the Depression, but I liked him very, very much. He died in 93 at the age of 90. I never, and his wife died in 1985. I never met her, but I think they had a beautiful relationship and I got the impression that they were real partners, said Tryon. Marion was actually Garrett's cousin and that's why they never had any children. It was in 1962, according to Tryon, when Dylan Beck and his wife moved out of the house on New Scotland Road to a farm in South Beck. Bethlehem. For much of the next three decades, the house sat vacant, although Dylan Beck reportedly came back quite a bit to his old home and would often spend the night there. I've met so many people who knew this house when they were young and just loved it, said Mark Tryon, who added a fourth child, a daughter, to his family soon after moving into the house. We love it, too. The kids... But the kids are older now and out of the house, so we're thinking about selling it. We may move, but we feel like this house was a treasure that needed to live on, and we saved it, so we feel really great about that. So although it there, there isn't haunted any haunted lore associated with this house, it before restoration absolutely looked haunted and the fact that like there was this Hollywood association with it I thought that was really interesting and noteworthy. So I thought that would be cool, a cool way to kind of kick off the episode and then next I wanted to move over to Delmar and this is where we just start for the rest of the episode some personal stories so the first one is submitted by Anonymous and it says where Ellesmere Ave goes under the tracks is a stairway next to the street I've seen a ghost sitting on that stairway it was a young man that looked like he was from another time judging by the way he was dressed I saw him sitting there and then I noticed that I could see through him a little bit I looked closer and then I realized he was fading out of visibility he was slowly turning invisible now if that is not a ghost then I don't know what is does anyone know anything about what might have happened in there um so that's interesting to see something just disappear out of thin air <laughs> the next one is actually from in delmar is out of david pipkin's book ghosts of the northeast and this one is um entitled kenwood ghosts in the late 1940s, just down the road in Delmore, Delmar, Gallen Ritchie grew up near the old high school in a row house at 360, 346 excuse me, Kenwood, built in about 1890. When he was 15 and a newcomer to Delmar, he awoke one night to see a figure at the foot of his bed watching. Moonlight streamed in the window and I could make out the man's old-fashioned black and white three-piece suit. Across the front of his vest dangled a gold watch and fobs. He just stood there. Finally, I could sit, I could could stand the suspense no longer and asked who are you he smiled and then slowly faded the experience lasted about five minutes i jumped out of bed turned on the lights but he was gone the experience happened only once and i've often wondered if my visitor was the businessman who'd built the house since then in the 1950s the three unit row house was converted to a single family residence from time to time i stroll past the house and i wonder if the old man is still smiling at the residence Next, staying on the same street at 65 Kenwood Avenue. The house at 65 Kenwood Avenue has been in the Kleinecke family 
Kleinke family for 200 years. When the grandmother died, it sat empty for over a year. In 1995, Wendy, a Kleinke descendant who just moved in, experienced cold spots. Hearing footsteps upstairs at night and fearing a break-in, she called the police who found nothing out of place. The phantom walker was more frightening than she could bear. And one night, she ran to the security of her mother's nearby house in her nightgown. Two days later, she moved out, leaving the old homestead to her sister, Ruth. Ruth Van Denberg, enjoying the old house's aura of family tradition, eagerly completed her family's move in 1997. Soon, the unusual events began for Ruth and her family, as they had for Wendy. One day in the cellar, she saw a white flash as if someone had sped past her. In October 2000, she clearly saw a woman in white walk past the doorway and described the woman to her father at Thanksgiving dinner. That's your great-grandmother and my grandmother. You described her perfectly. You saw her walking into your kid's playroom, but I remember when it was her bedroom, he said. At Christmas, Ruth saw her standing at the foot of her bed. I couldn't make out her face, but I saw the nightgown in detail. Long hair fell down her back. It was as if she was inspecting me, sizing up another generation. Maybe she doesn't like my fiancé, Scott, living here. She regularly turns his radio on and off. Ironically, if we go to bed and leave the TV on, she turns it off for us. It never fails. Lights flicker frequently, though the electric utility company inspection revealed nothing mechanically wrong. Maybe great-grandmother has a soft spot for Scott when he's vulnerable, though. In the winter of 2000, he broke his foot and was bedridden for a time. He saw her hovering in the air around his bed until he was able to get up and move around by himself. We know she watches, uh, watches us, probably just trying to fa fathom our modern way of life. I mean, great-grandmother or not, a lady in a white dress just like floating around your house and staring at you would petrify me i could i could not handle that um so next we're going to move over to voriesville and this one is submitted by anonymous I lived in a house in Voorheesville for over 10 years. My babysitter would never come back. The house was part of the Underground Railroad. We had windows on the top floor facing the mountain called Lookout for the Indians for Attack. I That was a sentence that I don't know if it made sense. <laughs> we had light bulbs explode over our head even though the light was off. The piano would play at night. We had a cake dish fly across the room and loud banging noises at night. Our basement was a lift door on the kitchen floor and you would pull the floor up to go down and it was where the banging noises came from. I can assure you this house had many activities and if you ask an original resident from Voorheesville in the 70s they could tell you where I lived. As a young girl I had a sleepover for my birthday and no friends would come because they were scared. <laughs> oh no. Um, and then the, um, the next one is submitted by Macy. I was in my house and I went downstairs to get dinner and I was in my basement when I heard music playing. I looked around and I did not see anything, but as I turned back, there was a man in his late 40s and he said, this is my house and it always will be. And then he disappeared. Oh, that's sad. And then the next one is submitted by someone named Christine. I was at my cousin's house. She asked me to walk the dog in the woods. So I took the dog and headed for the woods in their backyard. When I was maybe 100 feet in, I saw a woman, maybe in her late 20s. She had dark brown hair and a very dark red jacket. She slowly faded away and the dog started barking crazy where she was standing. Um, so that's fascinating. That's the few stories I had from Voorheesville. And then we'll round out this short but sweet episode in Gilderland. 
This is submitted by Jess. Okay, so my friend and neighbor told me about the pine bush ghost. 30 years ago, a man died in the woods, the pine bush. No one knows why he died. We think from a heart attack or something like that. So every night at 1.02 in the morning to 2.13, he roams the neighborhood. So one night we had a sleepover and we stayed up till 1.02. We saw him. He was a tall man with a gray long sleeve shirt on and jeans with paint and holes on it. He had a bluish glow and walked slowly looking at in at every house. He walked up the driveway so we hid so that he did not see what we did. We hid so we did not see what he did. <laughs> in the morning there was a white circle on the ground. This was very scary. <laughs> um next and believe last is um submitted oh no second to last is submitted by Eric. Every night on Blessing Road, there have several been several accounts of seeing a ghost who was very frightening. Early witnesses and locals who knew him say he murdered three of his neighbors and he was later brought to a mental institution. He, beca- he can be seen carrying a bloody knife and wears a brown raggedy suit. Ugh. He is spotted crossing the road to the farm. If you see him, you are said to swerve across the road, just as many other victims have said. That sounds like an urban legend. And then lastly is submitted by Gilderland. So Gilderland and Gilderland. (laughs) I was outside walking in the dark and it was only around nine o'clock to walk my dog. And I saw a person, but it looked like a ghost. And I thought I heard him say, get out of my town. He said that a bunch of times. And then he said Gilderland was his town. And then then I finally got home and then the power went out. I do not know why there was no storm or anything. So I went to bed and then I heard it again. Get out of my town. It was like the twilight zone gilderland is a nice town i don't care what he said i would never leave after that it never happened again so that was a interesting short little trip around the area i um i know that because of the proximity to the places we talked about last week the selkirk area um and the proximity to albany there's just so much energy in that area so please if you have any personal stories uh send us a message on instagram the haunted 518 or haunted 518 on facebook and um, i'll definitely post a photo of that that beautiful ironweed house uh spooky but beautiful the before and the afters of it oh it's creepy looking um before and it's it's beautiful after but still i don't think i could live there but i did want to just list off the places that i got my information sweethousedreams.blogspot.com the daily gazette and ghostsofamerica.com as well as david pitkin's book ghosts of the northeast so on that note i hope you guys enjoyed this little uh road trip around the area the slingerlands area and uh next week i um have a interesting topic coming up so definitely stay tuned um we'll be stepping outside of the 518 but it's for a really interesting topic so um yeah i just thought uh i would let you guys know now so you have something to look forward to and as always cheers and um cheers to everyone in the haunted 518 community and happy haunting